In Islam, there has been no such dissolution of ancestral doctrine, or, at any rate, nothing corresponding to the universal breakup of religion in Europe. The whole spiritual strength of Islam is still present in the masses of Syria and Anatolia, of the East Asian mountains, of Arabia, Egypt, and North Africa. The final fruit of this tenacity, the second period of Islamic power, may be delayed, but I doubt whether it can be permanently postponed. There is nothing in the Mohammedan civilization itself which is hostile to the development of scientific knowledge or of mechanical aptitude. I have seen some good artillery work in the hands of Mohammedan students of that arm. I have seen some of the best driving and maintenance of mechanical road transport conducted by Mohammedans. There is nothing inherent to Mohammedanism to make it incapable of modern science and modern war. Indeed, the matter is not worth discussing. It should be self-evident to anyone who has seen the Mohammedan culture at work. That culture happens to have fallen back in material applications. There is no reason whatever why it should not learn its new lesson and become our equal in all those temporal things which now alone give us our superiority over it. Whereas in faith, we have fallen inferior to it. People who question this may be misled by a number of false suggestions dating from the immediate past. For instance, it was a common saying during the 19th century that Mohammedanism had lost its political power through its doctrine of fatalism. But that doctrine was in full vigor when the Mohammedan power was at its height. For that matter, Mohammedanism is no more fatalist than Calvinism. The two heresies resemble each other exactly in their exaggerated insistence upon the immutability of divine decrees. There was another more intelligent suggestion made in the 19th century, which was this that the decline of Islam had proceeded from its fatal habit of perpetual civil division, the splitting up and changeability of political authority among the Mohammedans. But that weakness of theirs was present from the beginning. It is inherent in the very nature of the Arabian temperament from which they started. Over and over again, this individualism of theirs, this fissiparous tendency of theirs, has gravely weakened them. Yet over and over again, they have suddenly united under a leader and accomplished the greatest things. Now it is probable enough that on these lines, unity under a leader, the return of Islam may arrive. There is no leader as yet, but enthusiasm might bring one, and there are signs enough in the political heavens today of what we may have to expect from the revolt of Islam at some future date, perhaps not far distant. After the Great War, the Turkish power was suddenly restored by one such man. Another such man in Arabia, with equal suddenness, affirmed himself and destroyed all the plans laid for the incorporation of that part of the Mohammedan world into the English sphere. Syria, which is the connecting link, the hinge and, and the pivot of the whole Mohammedan world, is, upon the map and superficially, divided between an English and a French mandate. But the two powers intrigue one against the other and are equally detested by their Mohammedan subjects who are only kept down precariously by force. There has been bloodshed under the French mandate more than once, and it will be renewed. Note, this was written in March 1936. While under the English mandate, the forcing of an alien Jewish colony upon Palestine has raised the animosity of the native Arab population to white heat. Meanwhile, a ubiquitous underground Bolshevist propaganda is working throughout Syria and North Africa continually against the domination of Europeans over the original Mohammedan population. Lastly, there is this further point to which attention should be paid. 
The attachment, such as it is, of the Mohammedan world in India to English rule is founded mainly upon the gulf between the Mohammedan and the Hindu religions. Every step towards a larger political independence for either party strengthens the Mohammedan desire for renewed power. The Indian Mohammedan will more and more tend to say, If I am to look after myself and not to be favored as I have been in the past by the alien European master in India, which I once ruled, I will rely upon the revival of Islam. For all these reasons, and many more might be added, men of foresight may justly apprehend, or at any rate expect, the return of Islam. It would seem as though the great heresies were granted an effect proportionate to the lateness of their appearance in the story of Christendom. The earlier heresies on the Incarnation, when they died out, left no enduring relic of their presence. Arianism was revived for a moment in the general chaos of the Reformation. Sundry scholars, including Milton in England and presumably Bruno in Italy, and a whole group of Frenchmen put forward doctrines in the 16th and 17th centuries, which attempted to reconcile a modified materialism and a denial of the Trinity with some part of Christian religion. Milton's effort was particularly noticeable. English official history has, of course, suppressed it as much as possible by the usual method of scamping all emphasis upon it. The English historians do not deny Milton's materialism. Quite recently, several English writers on Milton have discoursed at length on his refusal of full divinity to our Lord, but this effort at suppression will break down. For one cannot forever hide a thing so important as Milton's attack, not only on the Incarnation, but on the Creation and on the omnipotence of Almighty God. But of that I will speak later when we come to the Protestant movement. It remains generally true that the earlier heresies not only died out, but left no enduring memorial of their action on European society. But Mohammedanism coming as much later than Arianism as Arianism was later than the Apostles has left a profound effect on the political structure of Europe and upon language, even to some extent on science. Politically, it destroyed the independence of the Eastern Empire, and though various fragments have, some of them, revived in maimed fashion, the glory and unity of Byzantine rule disappeared forever under the attacks of Islam. The Russian Tsardom, oddly enough, took over a maimed inheritance from Byzantium, but it was a very poor reflection of the old Greek splendor. The truth is that Islam permanently wounded the east of our civilization in such fashion that barbarism partly returned. On North Africa, its effect was almost absolute, and remains so to this day. Europe has been quite unable to reassert herself there. The great Greek tradition has utterly vanished from the valley of the Nile and from the Delta, unless one calls Alexandria some sort of relic thereof, with its mainly European civilization, French and Italian, but beyond that, right up to the Atlantic, the old order failed apparently forever. The French, in taking over the administration of Barbary and planting therein a considerable body of their own colonists, of Spaniards, and of Italians, have left the main structure of North African society wholly Mohammedan, and there is no sign of its becoming anything else. In what measure Islam affected our science and our philosophy is open to debate. Its effect has been, of course, heavily exaggerated, because to exaggerate it was a form of attack upon Catholicism, the main part of what writers on mathematics, physical science, and geography from the Islamic side, writers who wrote in Arabic, who professed either the full doctrine of Islam or some heretical form of it, sometimes almost atheist, was drawn from the Greek and Roman civilization which Islam had overwhelmed. 
It remains true that Islam handed on through such writers a great part of the advances in those departments of knowledge which the Greco-Roman civilization had made. During the Dark Ages, and even during the early Middle Ages, or at any rate the very early Middle Ages, the Mohammedan world detained the better part of academic teaching, and we had to turn to it for our own instruction. The effect of Mohammedanism on Christian language, though of course a superficial matter, is remarkable. We find it in a host of words, including such very familiar ones as algebra, alcohol, admiral, etc. We find it in the terms of heraldry, and we find it abundantly in place names. Indeed, it is remarkable to see how place names of Roman and Greek origin have been replaced by totally different Semitic terms. Half the rivers of Spain, especially in the southern part of the country, include the term Wadi, and it is curious to note how far in the western hemisphere Guadeloupe preserves an Arabic form drawn from Estremadura. The towns in North Africa and the villages, for that matter, as a rule, were rebaptized. The names of the most famous. For instance, Carthage and Caesarea disappeared. Others arose spontaneously, such as Algiers, a name derived from the Arabic phrase for the islands. The old roadstead of Algiers owing its partial security to a line of rocky islets parallel with the coast. The whole story of this replacing of the original names of towns and rivers by Semitic forms is one of the most valuable examples we have of the disconnection between language and race. The race in North Africa from Libya westward is much what it has been from the beginning of recorded time. It is Berber. Yet the Berber language survives only in a few hill districts and in desert tribes. The Punic, the Greek, the Latin, the common speech of Tripoli, a surviving Greek name, by the way, Tunis, and all Barbary have quite gone. Such an example should have given pause to the academic theorists who talked of the English as Anglo-Saxon and argued from their place names that the English had come over from North Germany and Denmark in little boats, exterminated everybody east of Cornwall, and replanted it with their own communities. Yet of such fantasies a good deal survives, most strongly, of course, at Oxford and Cambridge.